Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of anti-Semitism that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On June 17, 1940, 84-year-old Marshal Philippe Pétain, the hero of Verdun, prepared to deliver a radio address to France. France was in the midst of its darkest moment in recent memory. A week earlier, three German army groups had punched through defensive positions along northern France, routing French forces. Within days, Paris had fallen to the Germans. During this desperate time, the French badly needed a hero, a savior who could rally the battered military and halt the ferocious Blitzkrieg. Marshal Pétain seemed like their best hope. He stepped up to the microphone, white mustache drooping over his lips. He took a deep breath. And then, the hero of Verdun spoke, his voice resonating out of radios across the country. But Pétain didn't tell the French people to keep fighting the Nazis. He told them to surrender. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at lesser-known World War II dictators who are allied with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Today, we're exploring the life of Philippe Pétain, the World War I hero who went on to lead Vichy France in the wake of Germany's invasion. Though Pétain ruled mostly independent of the Nazis, he pursued a policy of collaboration that saw tens of thousands of French Jews deported to concentration camps. In doing so, Pétain tarnished his exalted image forever. We'll head to France right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Many dictators claw their way to the top, driven by ruthless ambition. But sometimes a dictator is made when there is simply no one else around who can take the job. It isn't so much because they're ambitious or cunning or vicious. 
but rather because they seem like the only alternative to chaos. Philippe Pétain was not a man who thirsted for power. In fact, it wasn't until late in life that anyone knew who he was. But once he did find himself a national hero, Pétain started to wonder if he would always be France's savior during times of trouble. That hubris turned him from a hero to a villain. Henri-Philippe Benoni Omer Pétain was born in the village of Cauchy à la Tour in northern France on April 24, 1856. His family were rural peasants, tracing their ancestry back to the 17th century. According to historian Nicholas Atkin, like many peasants from the Artois, Pétain possessed a prudent and phlegmatic temperament peppered with a caustic sense of humor. Undoubtedly, these qualities enabled him to remain calm at moments of crisis, yet they also fostered a pessimism which clouded his vision. Such humor and pessimism was only exacerbated by the fact that Pétain's mother died when he was 18 months old. And when his father remarried, Pétain was sent to be raised by relatives. But there were privileges in Pétain's childhood, too. Thanks to his uncle, who valued what education could do for a young man, Pétain received an excellent one. Eventually, in 1876, he enrolled in a French military academy, perhaps because the army was one of the best career choices available to a peasant boy at the time. Unfortunately for Pétain, however, upon graduation, France was experiencing an extended period of peace. So, the young soldier spent the majority of his fighting years waiting around for conflict. In the meantime, however, Pétain proved himself as a peacetime officer. In 1893, he joined the staff of the military commander of Paris, where he worked for six years. For a few years, he bounced around, but ended up back in Paris and soon took a lecturer position in infantry tactics in 1903. During that time, he earned a reputation for a dry sense of humor, laconic speech, and more importantly, unconventional military thinking. Specifically, Pétain's support of defensive firepower over offensive infantry charges. This was completely against the norm and made Pétain into something of a maverick amongst military strategists. And yet, there was no war for Pétain to put his theories into practice. And as he slowly climbed the ranks, eventually gaining command of the 33rd Infantry Brigade and then the 4th, Pétain believed that he would likely retire before ever seeing war. By 1914, he was 58 and too old to see the battlefield. Soon, his schemes for defensive stratagems gave way to schemes for tending a small garden in retirement. Of course, that all changed on July 28, 1914, with the outbreak of World War I. Whether Patel liked it or not, retirement would have to wait. He was promoted to Brigadier General and participated in the First Battle of the Marne in September 1914, contributing to the bloody Allied victory over the Germans. As the Allies and Central Powers settled into deadlocked trench warfare, Pétain was tasked with defending the vital city of Arras. His meticulous organizational skills and ability to mobilize artillery support earned him relative battlefield success, 
as well as the admiration of his superiors and further promotion. Meanwhile, his concern for his fellow soldiers earned him the respect of the enlisted troops, too. Pétain did what he could to improve the conditions of ordinary soldiers, making sure they received good rations and proper leave. He was among the few senior officers who bothered to visit the front line. But all previous challenges and successes paled in comparison to what awaited Pétain outside the small city of Verdun in northeastern France. Beginning on February 21, 1916, Pétain and his men would experience one of the bloodiest battles in human history. The German battle plan was to lure the French into a disadvantageous offensive and bleed the French army white. Then they'd capture the fortress city of Verdun, which they believed would be devastating for French morale and enable a German victory in the Great War. Pétain agreed. He was convinced that the decisive battle had come. The Supreme Allied commanders, however, saw things differently. They felt the action taking place at Verdun was just one part of a much larger picture, the whole of the Western Front. Pétain did his best to change their minds. He urged his superiors to commit more men and weapons to the fight. The Allied command refused to listen, with devastating consequences. Within a few days of the battle, the Germans had penetrated through two French defensive lines. A month into the fighting, overwhelmed French generals began considering a massive retreat. The French government, finally concerned, looked to the man who'd warned them Verdun was important, Philippe Pétain. They gave him command of the troops in the hopes of avoiding a retreat. Pétain didn't retreat. Instead, he ensured that the soldiers at the battle were rotated continuously so that no one served too much time and to allow for rest. As the fighting raged on, this policy meant that almost all the soldiers in the French army fought at Verdun, perhaps as many as 75%. At the same time, Pétain organized a constant stream of supplies to be delivered through the one reliable supply road, aptly called the Sacred Way. He strengthened the French defenses and committed every artillery piece he could muster. An estimated over 10 million artillery shells were fired during the battle. After nearly 10 months of bloodshed, one of the longest battles in human history, the Battle of Verdun finally ended on December 18, 1916. It was costly on both sides. Verdun cost around 400,000 French casualties and saw about 50,000 fewer on the German side. But thanks largely to Pétain's strategic counteroffenses and the tenacious defense of the Poilu, or the ordinary French infantry soldier, it was a French victory. As Verdun became synonymous with the Great War, Pétain became synonymous with Verdun. His victory made him a hero. But more than anything, his compassion for his men ensured their lasting respect. They started to call him the Lion of Verdun. But for all Pétain's success, the war was far from over, and soldier morale was reaching a breaking point. In April 1917, French General Robert Nivelle launched what he hoped would be the decisive breakthrough of the war. 
a major push that came to be known as the Nivelle Offensive. It was a disaster. In a single week, the French army lost roughly 120,000 men. Nivelle failed to achieve the decisive victory he had promised his men. The French army had reached its limit and refused to go any further. On April 29th, an infantry battalion refused orders. On May 3rd, a whole division mutinied when they learned they were to be sent back to the front. By May 9th, more than half the French army was in a state of mutiny. While the soldiers were still willing to defend their positions, their refusal to obey orders might have deteriorated into something worse. In an attempt to rescue the situation, Prime Minister Paul Penlevé dismissed Nivelle and made Pétain commander-in-chief. Perhaps the Lion of Verdun, beloved by ordinary soldiers, could fix things. Pétain threw himself into the assignment. He went to every battalion and assured them that no major offenses would be made until they had recovered their strength, showing that he understood their plight. He promised that the French would, quote, wait for the Americans and the tanks. And the empathetic assurances worked. Pétain was able to quell the mutinies. In the following weeks, too, he treated the culprits with considerable empathy. According to historian John Julius Norwich, although some 35,000 soldiers were involved, Pétain held only 3,400 court-martials, at which 554 men were sentenced to death, but over 90% had their sentences commuted. Perhaps it was Pétain's own humble background that gave him such deep concern for the ordinary soldier. Or perhaps it was the pragmatic knowledge that men fight harder when they know they're respected. Either way, he brought the army back from the brink of chaos. Meanwhile, the American reinforcements he'd promised soon began to arrive, changing the entire course of the war. The Germans attempted one final offensive. It failed. Exhausted, the Germans signed an armistice on November 11, 1918. When Pétain received the news, he buried his face in his hands and wept. World War I was over. He had done his duty for France. Now he could look forward to a well-earned retirement, no longer an obscure soldier, but as a beloved hero. Or so he hoped. Until fascism came knocking at France's door. Coming up, Pétain's warnings against French demobilization are ignored with fatal consequences. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board. So these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outlaws like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. 
Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1914, Europe erupted into war. Philippe Pétain entered the conflict as an untested minor French commander. He emerged four years later as a national hero, the Lion of Verdun. 62-year-old Pétain did a victory tour of his country. He led a procession of infantry into the town of Metz and received a marshal's baton. There were parades and honors everywhere. Eventually, though, the celebrations died down. When they did, Pétain bought a small farm in the south of France, ready to enjoy a simple, quiet life. But Pétain was anything but a good farmer. He quickly lost his patience with growing his own food, especially when he realized it was cheaper to just go to the store for his goods. He was bored with retirement. So in 1920, Pétain accepted the position of vice president of the Conseil Supérieur de la Guerre. France's War Council. In the post, Pétain attempted to halt the demobilization of the French army as he believed only a robust army could prepare for future conflict. But after the horrors and losses of World War I, no one wanted to commit their countrymen to a large military. Pétain was consistently ignored. Already pessimistic, his pessimism deepened as he watched France weaken itself militarily throughout the 1920s. Meanwhile, France was not completely at peace during these years, especially in its colonies. In 1919, in Morocco, the charismatic rebel Abdel Krim led a revolt against Spanish colonial forces in a region called the Rif. In 1925, the Rift War expanded to the French-occupied region of North Africa. Though the 69-year-old Pétain insisted that he was too old for active duty and knew nothing of colonial warfare, he reluctantly agreed to go to North Africa to quell the revolt. Pétain summoned 150,000 French troops to Morocco and systematically crushed the rebellion with the aid of artillery and aerial bombardment. On May 27, 1926, Abdel Krim surrendered, ending the Rif War. But Pétain was not heralded as a hero. Back in France, the response to the victory was ambivalent, especially on the political left. Many of Pétain's countrymen disagreed with the basic premise of the fight. They saw it as a war in support of colonialism and imperialism, which they wanted to end. Pétain was, in a word, disgusted by this response. He saw it as one part of a rising tide of pacifism and communism within France. Now in his 70s, Pétain frequently spouted off tirades against communist schoolteachers, who were, he complained, ruining the country. While the left repelled him, Pétain grew increasingly attracted to the far right. 
Though he would never come to embrace fascism as an ideology, Pétain's fear of communism led him to view authoritarian leaders as a means to restore, quote, national greatness. Politically, Pétain sounded more like a crank than an ideologue. And although he feared communists ruining France from within, he also feared France's enemies along the borders, especially Germany. Though few in the military believed war with Germany was inevitable, tensions had begun to rise once again. In 1923, the Germans defaulted on reparations, and a wave of anti-French sentiment had grown among the Germans. Thus, France decided to build lines of concrete fortifications and gun turrets along the German border. These, they hoped, would stop any attack. Named after the Minister of War André Maginot, they became known as the Maginot Line. Pétain threw himself headlong into the project. The line made practical sense. France had lost over a million soldiers in World War I, and so the fortifications would help make up for the lack of bodies. Further, the French government was uninterested in spending money on offensive weapons, so building defensive works was a compromise. For roughly a year or so, Pétain dedicated much of his time inspecting and monitoring the construction along France's border. What he saw pleased him. So much so that before the project was complete, Pétain retired again in 1930 at age 74. Had he been fortunate enough to die then, he would likely be remembered fondly as one of the great heroes of French history. Unfortunately, History was taking a dark turn for France and for the hero of Verdun. As it entered the 1930s, the French government found itself in dire straits. The global Great Depression was a major contributing factor, but so too were government scandals. The most consequential was the Stavisky affair. Alexandra Stavisky was a financier with connections in the government when it came to light that he had embezzled hundreds of millions of francs worth of fake municipal bonds, he was suddenly found dead. The police insisted that he had died by suicide, but many believed that he was actually killed in a government cover-up. The subsequent scandal exposed widespread corruption in the government and forced Premier Édouard Deladier to resign in February 1934. But the people were not easily calmed. They took to the streets in protests, which culminated when troops fired on demonstrators, killing 15. French politics became deeply polarized. Angry groups on both sides of the political spectrum agitated for the overthrow of the government. The Third Republic never quite recovered. In the years to come, it remained divided and weak, especially in comparison to the new, menacing face of fascism rising just across the border in Germany, Adolf Hitler. Still, it did its best to rally. After the downfall of Premier Daladier, Gaston Dumergue became the new French premier. In order to shore up his government, he asked Pétain to become minister of war. Pétain agreed, coming out of retirement once again at age 78. Pétain's objective as Minister of War was to secure additional funding for the army. That task appeared increasingly necessary in 1935, 
when Adolf Hitler officially announced that Germany was rearming itself. Even so, the French government was unwilling to get into an out-and-out arms race with Germany. Pétain retired once more, this time out of frustration with what he saw as France's willful blindness to the Nazi threat. Yet again, though, retirement was temporary. In 1939, after four years of political exile, Édouard de Ladier returned to power and convinced Pétain to be ambassador to Francisco Franco's fascist Spain. Unfortunately, this only brought Pétain closer to sympathizing with the far right. Franco had crushed communism in Spain, and Pétain couldn't help but be impressed. Though the French government under Deladier was mostly centrist, Pétain was dismayed by the number of liberals and communists who still held influence in the country. He refused to believe that the left wanted to keep France strong and her borders secure. Which, by 1939, was certainly an alarming thought, since Hitler's Germany decided it was going to ignore European borders and expand. Philippe Pétain was in Spain when Germany invaded Poland on September 1, 1939. Two days later, France and Great Britain declared war. But for the first eight months, very little happened on the Western Front, a situation commonly referred to as the Phony War. During the so-called Phony War, the Allies were preparing to fight. Assuming Germany would eventually storm through Belgium, as it had in World War I, Allied forces concentrated there, leaving France defended by the Maginot Line. But to the surprise of the Allies, German armored divisions also decided to strike at the Maginot Line, and they blew through it entirely. The Maginot Line, that grand articulation of Pétain's belief in strong defensive lines, was easily overrun. And in the blink of an eye, France's military situation became dire. The French government once again reached out to Pétain, offering him the role of vice-premier. Pétain accepted, feeling that his worries about leftists in power had been bitterly vindicated. When he submitted his resignation to Franco, he remarked, My country has been beaten. This is the work of 30 years of Marxism. On May 18, 1940, Pétain arrived in Paris, providing a morale boost for the French civilians who still adored him. But that's about all his arrival did. Practically speaking, there was little Pétain could do to stop the Nazi war machine. On May 29th, Belgium surrendered to the Nazis. The next day, British troops defending Belgium and France began a mass evacuation at Dunkirk. Pétain's old pessimism reared up, and he became convinced that soon the British, whom he had always loathed, would surrender. Defeat, he told anyone who would listen, was inevitable. Which is why he was convinced there was only one way forward, make a separate peace with Germany as soon as possible. Gone were the days of Verdun, when tenacious French infantry soldiers could hold the line all on their own. German air and armor power now overwhelmed the French forces. The Germans rode into Paris unopposed 
on June 14, 1940. Prime Minister Renault still hoped to relocate the government and some French troops to North Africa and continue the fight. But Pétain and Commander-in-Chief Maxime Végan advocated for an armistice. Pétain and Végan were hardly alone. The spirit of defeat had settled over France, and few wanted to continue the fight. Renault, seeing the writing on the wall, resigned. Pétain was asked to form a new government. Eager to make peace and save what remained of the nation and the army, he agreed. On June 17th, Pétain announced on a radio broadcast, With a heavy heart, I tell you today that it is necessary to stop the fighting. Technically, France had not yet officially signed an armistice, but Pétain's address shattered whatever was left of the French army's morale. At the time, the call to surrender seemed like the sensible thing to do. Most people expected the Germans to demand reparations and some territory, but then to go home. Life would, more or less, go back to normal. Few expected that with Pétain in power, France would be transformed into an authoritarian police state. Or that the hero of Verdun would ask his countrymen to work side by side with the Nazis. Coming up, Pétain's policy of collaboration leads to the deaths of thousands of innocent people. Now back to the story. In June 1940, 84-year-old Philippe Pétain told the French people to lay down their arms and surrender to Germany. After a swift German invasion into France, Pétain believed he was making the only practical choice. He hoped surrender would save what was left of France and its military. It didn't. On June 25th, Pétain signed the armistice with Germany. The deal stopped the Nazis from advancing, but it also cut France in half. The entire Atlantic seaboard and northern France were given to the Nazis wholesale. Only the southern half remained autonomous. Meanwhile, Contrary to Pétain's expectations, the Brits refused to stop their fight against Germany despite France's armistice. Prime Minister Winston Churchill feared that the French fleet would fall into German hands. Then it could be used in an invasion of the British Isles. To prevent that from happening, the British attacked several French vessels, capturing some and bombing others. The French were outraged, and Pétain broke diplomatic relations with Britain. The British attack also proved to be an opportunity for one ambitious French politician named Pierre Laval. Laval hoped to consolidate power in the new government, and he would use Pétain to do it. While the marshal had never had much of a stomach for politics, Laval was a born politician who had a very high opinion of himself. When Pétain once remarked that the Germans didn't trust Laval, Laval responded that it was because they feared he would outwit them. Pétain originally intended to oversee the French government only during the peace negotiations, but the British attacks changed that. Now Laval helped convince Pétain to become the new master of France. Pétain was seduced by the notion of leading a regeneration of the French state, rooting out the evil influence of communist school teachers 
and remaking the country in his own image. Laval convinced the Chamber of Deputies, France's parliament, to suspend the Constitution and make Pétain head of state. Over the next several months, with Laval's help, Pétain accumulated nearly all executive, legislative, and judicial powers for himself. One of Pétain's first acts was to choose Laval as his successor. Laval was henceforth jokingly referred to as Pétain's Dauphin. Pétain and Laval's government was officially independent and unoccupied, but it nevertheless adopted a policy of collaboration with Nazi Germany. This state came to be known as Vichy France, after the resort town which held its government. For years, it was argued that Vichy France was nothing more than a puppet of Nazi Germany. But that is not true. Government officials in Vichy, including Pétain, typically acted of their own volition. For the most part, Hitler took a hands-off approach to Vichy France for the first two years. He wanted to keep it as independent and legitimate as possible in order to coax the British into surrendering. He hoped that if he showed how lenient he was to France, perhaps the British would feel safe enough to quit. The Vichy government, meanwhile, was eager to collaborate in order to ensure the best peace terms possible when the war inevitably ended. To them, Hitler was likely to win, so it was safer to be on his good side. However, when it came to general domestic policy, Pétain's government did as it pleased. According to historian Julian Jackson, when French administrators found themselves asked to carry out anti-democratic or anti-Semitic measures, it was often French laws, not German ones, they were being asked to apply. And as in most Nazi collaborator states, these quickly came to include the anti-Semitic measures and state persecution of Jews. On October 3, 1940, the Vichy regime approved its first Statut des Juifs, or Jewish statute. Jews were now barred from holding office or working as judges, lawyers, teachers, or soldiers. Bétain approved of the measure, though he did amend it to provide exceptions to Jews who had fought in World War I. This first piece of legislation did have some differences from similar projects in Croatia, Romania, and Slovakia, however. It was accompanied by an odd communique which asserted that the government, quote, respects Jewish persons and property, and that the statute would be upheld with a, quote, spirit of humanity. But that wouldn't last. The second Jewish statute of 1941 would mandate the seizure of Jewish property and businesses, turning them over to the state. The state persecution and anti-Semitism were more than clear and they weren't anything new in France. Attacks on French Jews had occurred intermittently for centuries. The notorious Dreyfus Affair, in which a Jewish soldier was falsely convicted of treason, was tinged with anti-Semitism and had sharply divided French society. After a more tolerant respite in the 1920s, the onset of the Great Depression intensified bigotry in France. Then, the rise of Nazism led hundreds of thousands of Jews to seek refuge in France, where they were looked down upon. As for Philippe Pétain himself, it's difficult to say whether he was any more or less anti-Semitic than other French Gentiles of his time and place. 
Though he was not the driving force behind Vichy France's anti-Semitic legislation, he never hesitated to sign off on it. Nor did Pétain make any effort to stop the deportation of Jews once it began. Throughout 1941, Jews in both Vichy France and the French-occupied zone were sporadically arrested en masse and thrown in local concentration camps. In Vichy France, foreign Jews were singled out. At one point, seven camps held 40,000 foreign-born. Then, at the start of 1942, after the Nazis decided on the so-called final solution, France began to deport Jews to concentration camps in German territory. They started in the occupied zone. Many Jews fled south, hoping they would be safe in Vichy France. They weren't. Vichy authorities arrested over 10,000 Jews between August 6th and September 15th alone. An estimated 76,000 Jews were deported from France, while another 4,000 died in France itself, either in camps or by execution. Most of those who were deported went on to die in German concentration camps. But as French leaders continued to collaborate with the Nazis, some French citizens in both the North and South began to resist. For some, this meant ignoring anti-Semitic policies and organizing networks to smuggle Jews out of France, usually over the treacherous Pyrenees Mountains. For those who wished to fight, it meant joining various resistance groups. Many of these rallied behind the charismatic, brave, and exiled General Charles de Gaulle, who also just so happened to be Philippe Pétain's former protégé. During the Great War, de Gaulle had served as a lieutenant under Pétain, and for a time between the wars, he had worked as the Marshal's ghostwriter. De Gaulle had admired Pétain so much that he named his first son Philippe. But after a publishing dispute, the two fell out and never reconciled. Once an ardent admirer of the old lion, during World War II, de Gaulle became among his greatest enemies. De Gaulle undermined Pétain's government from London, where he set up the Free French Forces. There, de Gaulle used daily radio broadcasts to urge the French people to reject Pétain's regime. Pétain, in turn, saw de Gaulle as a traitor advocating civil war and condemned him to death in absentia. But the growing French resistance whether directly or indirectly led by de Gaulle, wasn't the only resistance Philippe Pétain was suddenly forced to face. In November 1942, Allied troops invaded Morocco and Algeria. These North African territories were under Vichy control, and the Allies hoped that Pétain would see their invasion as a chance to switch sides. Instead, he told them it was a violation of French sovereignty. But that simple statement didn't placate anyone. In one ear, Pierre Laval and other pro-German ministers urged Pétain to declare war on Great Britain and America. In the other, a small group of aides pressed him to join the Allies. Hitler himself warned that if Pétain didn't declare himself Germany's ally, then he would be considered its enemy. With these voices pressing him from all sides, Pétain ultimately decided to do nothing. Perhaps he was frozen by the stress. 
perhaps he no longer had the mental strength to make hard decisions. By now, he was 86 and often fell asleep during cabinet meetings. Many of those around him thought he was steadily losing his cognitive facilities. Regardless, the outcome was the same. On November 10th, Hitler sent troops to occupy Vichy France. Within a day, all of France was under Nazi occupation. Pétain was put under constant surveillance. German guards accompanied him at all times, and the Gestapo kept close tabs on him. He wasn't, however, actually removed from his government position, and he did continue to take an active role in the administration of France, especially when it came to authoritarian measures. In 1943, he authorized the reorganization of a far-right militia into the Milice, a fascist paramilitary force. The Milice concerned itself with rooting out the French resistance and searching for Jews in hiding. Its favorite method was torture, which Pétain neither encouraged nor condemned. The rise of the Milice, however, likely reflected the more broadly deteriorating situation for Pétain and the Axis powers. In June 1944, the Allies launched the D-Day invasion of northern France. Pétain called on the French to resist the Allied troops. But by then, no one was listening. Instead, the French flocked to de Gaulle. The next 10 weeks were hard fought, but eventually, Allied forces closed in on Paris. The Germans had no hope of defending the city and surrendered it to the French on August 25, 1944. The next day, Charles de Gaulle strode triumphantly through liberated Paris. After reaching Notre Dame, he was suddenly shot at by Vichy loyalists. But rather than duck under the hail of bullets, he marched fearlessly through the firestorm down the aisle toward his seat. The French Republic had been restored. De Gaulle was clearly not one to run from a fight, and as it happened, neither was Philippe Pétain. As the Allies pushed deeper into France, Nazi authorities asked Pétain to flee to Germany, but he refused. So the Gestapo arrested Pétain and other Vichy ministers, including Pierre Laval, and dragged them to Siegmaringen, Germany. For the next eight months, Pétain waited around in Germany. Finally, in April 1945, as the Allies brought an end to the war, Pétain was captured by de Gaulle's free French forces, and de Gaulle's provisional government put him on trial. The proceedings began in July 1945. 89-year-old Pétain was charged with a long list of crimes, including collusion with the enemy and destruction of the Republic. Just as the prosecuting attorney began his questioning, Pétain suddenly stood up and addressed the court, saying in part, History will show the evils from which I saved France. My actions sustained France. Pétain said nothing else for the rest of the trial, until the very end when he remarked, Deal with me according to your consciences. Mine brings me no reproach, since during a life that has already been long, and having arrived at the threshold of death, I affirm that I have had no other ambition than to serve France. On August 15, 1945, the old Lion of Verdun was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to death. 
However, before Pétain could be executed, de Gaulle stepped in. He commuted the sentence to life imprisonment, citing Pétain's advanced age and his service in World War I. Pétain was housed in a prison on the Ile de Yeux, off the coast of western France, where he remained until his death on July 23, 1951, at age 95. Though he desired to be buried at Verdun, his bones remain on the Ile de Yeux. While Pétain marched toward death, France had to reconcile itself with the memory of Vichy. After liberation, thousands were sentenced to death, but most saw their sentences commuted. Pierre Laval, the overly enthusiastic pro-Nazi, wasn't spared. Other legacies were more complicated. Some who had a hand in Jewish persecution were acquitted, while others suspected of collaboration were beaten to death by angry mobs. Meanwhile, women accused of sleeping with German soldiers were shaved bald and paraded through the streets. For decades, it was convenient to write off Vichy France as a puppet of Nazi Germany and ignore the extent to which French citizens like Pétain actively participated in atrocities. But in 1995, former French President Jacques Chirac admitted that Vichy was France. Still, to this day, French leaders struggle with how to remember Philippe Pétain, irredeemable monster or deeply flawed hero who lost his way. Writing about his former protégé and later enemy, Charles de Gaulle described the marshal's life as successively banal, then glorious, then deplorable, but never mediocre. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we're taking a brief hiatus to bring you a special series on yoga cults from another Spotify original, Cults. Then we head to Japan to begin our dive into the life of Hideki Tojo. Among the many sources we used, we found Pétain, Verdun to Vichy by Robert B. Bruce, and Pétain by Nicholas Atkin, extremely useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.